0: Support for industry focus comes from TurboTax Live, new from TurboTax. Now you can get a personal review of your tax return with a CPA or EA right on your screen. Talk live with a tax expert as often as you need for tax advice to help you file with confidence. Go to turbotaxlive.com/fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, February 12th, and we are talking about investing in commercial banks. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined, as per usual, by Matt Frankel. Now, before we get started and get into the nitty-gritty, this is part three of our three-part series on big American banks. Part one was our December 11th episode, breaking down the investment banks, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Part 2 was our January 29th episode, Breaking Down Universal Banks, Bank of America, Citigroup, and J.P. Morgan. Now we're in Part 3, Commercial Banks, that's Wells Fargo and U.S. Bancorp. We'll be running these banks through the same framework that we did the first two sets. Um, he, Anand Chakavalu, the Pool.com's managing editor, wrote a great uh, piece, I really call it my banking Bible, back in 2014. It's his best... Uh, attempted a framework for how to understand a bank stock. And it's a great accompaniment to this episode because we'll be following that framework throughout. Shoot me an email at industryfocus at fool.com if you need the link uh, and if you don't have it, um, because it really helps, I think, kind of tie everything we're talking through together. With that in mind, let's go ahead and get started. So, what is a commercial bank and how is it different from, say,
1: a universal bank or an investment bank? Sure. Uh- Commercial bank is one that looks like what you normally think of as a bank. Uh, Bank whose primary business focus is to take in deposits from customers and make loans to other customers, and kind of profit from the spread in between those. Now, commercial banks also engage in some other activities such as wealth management. Some uh, have insurance operations, like where they'll partner with an insurance company and sell it to their customers. Um, You know, safe deposit boxes, things of that nature. Credit card businesses, but in general, they avoid investment banking activities such as, you know, M and A advising, trading, um, underwriting, things like that. Um, they're more of what you would consider a traditional savings and loan bank.
0: Exactly, and I, I think that's just a, a critical thing. So when when you think about banking, probably, and if you haven't seen The Big Short, <laughs> then you're probably thinking about banks a lot like um, U.S. Bank and Wells Fargo. So. Let's start with part one of the framework, which is how do the banks make money and what do they actually
1: do? Well, both Wells Fargo and US Bank have like I said, they have one basic activity, which is to loan money and take deposits. That's split between what's known as community banking, which is, you know, when you open a checking account, you're part of the community banking system. This refers to banking products and services that they sell to individual customers, loans, deposit accounts, credit cards. There's also wholesale banking, which is the business banking line of it, Uh, business checking accounts, um, governmental banking products. Uh, And then both of these are also engaged in wealth management businesses. Now, commercial banks don't quite put the emphasis on wealth management that the investment banks or the universal banks tend to, but it's still a big part of their business. I know Wells Fargo Advisors is a it's a pretty big division. It uh, brought in over $4 billion in revenue last quarter. So these banks do have substantial wealth management businesses in, in addition to what you would normally think of as a community bank.
0: And you can see this by looking at their balance sheets. So um, assets, Wells Fargo, about $1.94 trillion. That's trillion with a TR. Uh, U.S. Bank, uh, $462 billion. Uh, loans, uh, make up about half of Wells Fargo's assets, and a little bit uh, closer to two thirds of U.S. bank corps. Um, the rest is securities, which is uh, in, or most of the rest is securities, which is tied up in all the wealth management activity. Um, one other thing that uh, it's important to note is on the um, assets versus deposits, right? So. Um, Wells Fargo again, about 1.94 trillion in assets, about 1.3 trillion in deposits. U.S. Bank, it's 462 billion and 347 billion. So in both cases, um, they've got um, most of their um, assets are covered by deposits, and they actually have deposits exceeding their loans. Now that means that they're still taking on some debt, but um, they are a lot sort of more heavily covered than you tend to see on, for example, the investment banking side.
1: Right. Um, investment banking, you'll see they have a lot more securities on their balance sheet, generally, you know, in their trading divisions. Um, neither Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank has a significant trading desk. So that's why you see the the mix kind of shift toward mostly deposits. I mean, definitely more than well over half in both cases. Um, and loans being well covered by those deposits. So they're not financing their deposit or their loans with debt. So, you know, like I said, traditional business of taking in money and trying to loan all that money
0: out. Right. The other thing that really highlights that is when you look at um, their income statement, um, you look at the metrics of net interest income and non-interest income. So net interest income is, again, that money that they're making from those loans. And then non-interest income is, well, everything else. (laughs) And in both cases, net interest income makes up a clear majority of their total net revenue. And so that's, uh, again, a sign that this is really a more, these are both kind of fairly traditional uh, banks.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. um, Non-interest income includes things such as all the the fees they're getting from those wealth management businesses. I mentioned uh, Wells Fargo's in particular is pretty big. Um, Also, I mean, this includes things down to, you know, safe deposit box rental. Um, Every time you get an overdraft fee on your bank account, the monthly checking account fees which have become very prevalent in the banking industry, unfortunately, over the past few years. I remember my checking account used to be free. I don't know about Michael's. Um, but these are the things that are in the non-interest income category. Um, so it may seem like a lot that Wells Fargo, although it's pretty much a traditional savings and loan, is generating you know, almost $10 billion in a quarter in non-interest income. It's actually pretty standard when you think of all the fees that Banks charge for their services.
0: Yeah, which you can think of as sort of ancillary to those traditional banking activities. Again, you know, a an overdraft fee is doesn't tell us that it's not a traditional savings and loans bank. So yeah, part of part of the the drawback of looking at any metric is that you really have to understand the nuance. So that's a that's a good point to throw in there. So we'll head to part two in just a minute. But first, a quick note from our sponsors. Support for industry focus comes from TurboTax Live, new from TurboTax. Now you can get a personal review of your tax return with a CPA or EA right on your screen. Quickly connect to a tax expert via a one-way video as often as you need for answers and advice on your taxes. You can even have an expert review your return before you file, make any necessary changes, and it is all backed with a 100% accuracy guarantee. File with complete confidence. Connect with a TurboTax Live expert today at turbotaxlive.com/fool. Okay, so let's turn now to part two of the framework, which is, how expensive is the bank? And of course, there are a few different ways to approach that, but our preferred is uh, price to tangible book value.
1: Right. This is how much a bank trades for relative to the actual assets, excluding you know intangible items like goodwill that are on its balance sheet. And kind of the short way to say it is that U.S. Bank Corp. is expensive. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> that that right would now, definitely yeah. be how to say it. Yeah. They they trade for a little over three times tangible book, which is, if you've been following the first two parts of our series, is the highest of the seven banks we've discussed. And uh, Wells Fargo is right around two times tangible book. Um, It's interesting to note, though, that if you value these in the traditional way, you know, price to earnings ratio, both are almost around, right around 16 times earnings. And if you look at some of the other banks, they all trade at around 16, between 15 and 17 times earnings. You know despite the fact that their price to tangible book kind of varies considerably from city groups just over one times tangible book to u.s bank over three times tangible book so that's kind of a metric you want to look at to differentiate between all the banks even though their price to earnings ratios may look about the same
0: And what's one of the interesting things to me about the price-to-earnings ratio here is that it it tells us, in some ways, a different story. So, when you have a bank that is expensive from a book value perspective, but is, let's say, cheap or in line, at least, from a price-to-earnings perspective, that is usually a sign that you've got a high return on equity. Now, as a reminder, generally speaking with banks, you want to see a return on equity of 10% plus. You know, 12% plus is awesome, but at least 10% plus. And U.S. Bank, as ROE, is Just under fourteen percent, and so that's one of the reasons why, even though it's expensive from a book value perspective, it actually looks pretty in line from a price to earnings
1: perspective. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a return on equity that you know would be reasonably good for a bank without branches. Right. I mean, that's that's almost unheard of for a branch based bank, especially one that size. Um, Just to give you the comparison, Wells Fargo's is eleven point three percent. And that's very good. Um, Most banks, most of the other banks are right around 10% or even a little bit less. Um, Return on assets is another one. You want to see about 1% return on assets. U.S. banks, almost 1.4%. So the quick way to say this is you get what you pay for. You're paying uh, premium valuation for the bank, but you're getting a much higher quality banking institution. Um, not to say well, well, Wells Fargo is low quality. U.S. Bank's just in a class by itself.
0: Indeed, and I have to admit here that we have kind of slipped into part three, which is what is the bank's earnings power. But it was just such a natural conversation that I couldn't resist. Um, the other one of the other pieces to look at is efficiency ratios. So you always want to see an efficiency ratio under sixty percent, if possible. U.S. Bank clears that at fifty-eight point eight percent, and Wells Fargo doesn't. They're at sixty-six point two percent. Now there are some Particular reasons for Wells Wells Fargo's to be so high recently. We'll get to that in a bit, um, but uh, that's certainly something to keep an eye on. The other piece that I'll throw out there is net interest margin, um, almost 3.1% at U.S. Bank, which is a really really good spread, um, and it's 2.9% at Wells Fargo, which is also a really good spread. I mean, generally speaking, if you're seeing above about two and a half percent, that's usually a pretty good sign. To see them both at or near double that is. Uh, a, a good spot to be, particularly because as interest rates continue to hopefully rise, knock on wood, um, there is a lot of opportunity for those interest rates, for those that interest margin to expand further.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, just to kind of give you a comparison, Bank of America is like about I think two and a quarter, which we think is pretty good. If you yeah. said anything over one and a half is nice. Um, the other thing you want to watch for is margin expansion, like. Wells Fargo is a special case we'll get to why in a minute <laughs> um, we'll, just, we'll just
0: keep we'll just keep burying that lead
1: yeah we'll, we'll just keep we'll kick the can down the road on that one <laughs> um, U- US bank the, their margins have expanded by 10 basis points over the past year so you can kind of see the effect of rising interest rates at work just generally uh, the rates banks charge for loans you know outpaces the rates they're paying for deposits so you'll see margins expand as interest rates, hopefully, like you said, would continue to rise.
0: Absolutely. And of course, this takes us to part four, which is, what risk is the bank taking on to achieve those earnings? To some extent, when you see a lot of growth and you see a lot of good metrics with a bank, one of the first questions you really have to ask is, okay. What's the flip side of this? Like, have they have they really found a way to build a better mousetrap, or is this a case of loaning out money too aggressively to people who may not be a good credit risk? So think about it this way: if you have um, uh, if you're putting out a risky loan, chances are good you're putting it out for a a good interest rate uh, from the bank's perspective, of course, not so much from the consumer's perspective, because you're able to charge more for someone who's higher risk. The flip side of that, though, is that when the tide goes out and the credit cycle turns and the economy goes bad, those tend to be the loans that are going to default first, which is not so great from a bank earnings perspective. And so that's something you really, really, really have to keep an eye on. Um, Both Wells and U.S. Bank, um, their net charge offs are are pretty low. Wells' is at 0.31%. U.S. Bank's is at 0.46%. Of course, cautionary point here. Which is that everything tends to look good when the credit cycle is doing well, but they both did pretty well even through the Great Recession, comparatively speaking.
1: Yeah, both of these banks have historically been known for having you know top notch asset portfolios. Um, one thing you do want to keep an eye on: both have substantial credit card businesses, especially Wells Fargo. Right, and these tend to be like Michael just said, the riskier loans, but banks are willing to make them because what's the interest rate on your credit card? Twenty percent. Something like that. (laughs) So that's why they're willing to do it. Um, But those are the loans that tend to turn first when credit cycle gets bad. So like you said, the numbers look great right now. They look great across the board. I can't think of a bank that has a high net charge off ratio right now. But keep an eye on these kind of when the tide goes out. Wells especially looks great right now, but they have a gigantic credit card business. So keep an eye on it
0: yeah uh, I think one of the other things to um, pay attention to as well is um, assets over equity and basically what that tells us is how hard is it the bank levering to achieve its earnings power um, usually if you see around 10 times you're pretty happy wells and US Bank are right between 10 and 11 so really no big concerns there uh, from from our perspective from my perspective at least so that's kind of how that looks so yeah generally speaking returns um have looked pretty good, even when you adjust for risk, well particularly when you adjust for risk i'd I'd, I'd say given that their asset portfolio's been historically good. but there are other parts to this story, and I think it's worth us talking about them but but first, of course, let's talk about taxes because that's the story of the day with all the big banks,
1: yeah, taxes really made fourth quarter bank earnings a real chore to read. <laughs> Like Some banks had a big net charge-off. Uh, Citigroup, for example, had to take a over $10 billion hit in the fourth quarter, whereas some banks had a tax benefit. Uh, Wells Fargo happened to be one of the few that had a big tax benefit. Um, they carried deferred tax liabilities on their balance sheet. And now that the corporate tax rate is 21% as opposed to 35%, those are you know, less of a liability. So they got to take a nice little credit this this quarter. Um, so ignoring 2017's tax rates, just because you can't really tell what's what, um, in 2016 and kind of the years before that, Wells Fargo paid an average of about a little over 31%, US banks closer to 27%. But the new corporate tax rate should be a tremendous boost to them and most of the other banks. Uh, Wells Fargo said in their earnings report that they expect to pay 19% in 2018. Now, the difference between 31% and 19%, when you're talking about a company that's generating, you know, billions and billions, 20 billion dollars or whatever it is of income a year, telling them they get to keep an extra 12% of that, is a big deal.
0: Yeah, um, it, it absolutely is, and that's going to be a big. Uh, plus, for banks going forward, as well as, of course, uh, as interest rates increase, as we've already discussed. Let's talk a little bit about Wells Fargo now. So, if you watch or read or hear the news, you're probably familiar with the Wells Fargo scandals, the fake account scandal in particular, where they um, basically, a lot of people were signed up for. Um, products that they didn't need and also didn't know they had by Wells Fargo staff who were trying to meet pretty aggressive sales quotas. And that not only looked quite bad and resulted in fines and class action lawsuits and a lot of money paid out, but it's also meant that Wells Fargo has really shifted its culture or is at least attempting to. They've gotten rid of the aggressive sales targets and they're trying to figure out kind of how to generate really strong profitability without... The sort of incentives that cause this kind of cheating. And frankly, that means the bank is in kind of a transitional year, probably a transitional few years as it tries to figure that out. Um, for me, that's definitely a big concern for the bank in the near term.
1: It is. and um their management openly acknowledges that you know they're not going to be able to sell eight different banking products to every customer anymore. And this could be a drag on earnings. They're also trying to be on their best behavior right now because of all the scandals. Um, So they're really not being pushy. I'm a Wells Fargo customer. And just walking into a bank branch, I get so many fewer sales pitches now that all this has happened. Um, But going forward, they're doing a good job of kind of trying to compensate in other ways. They're trying to reduce expenses on an ongoing basis by $2 billion this year and another $2 billion next year. So it just kind of is going to be a matter of whether that's enough to make up for what they're losing by getting rid of the aggressive sales practices. Um, if they are successful at making up for it and you know maintaining their 11% return on equity and fantastic asset quality, they could look like a, a great turnaround story. But it's kind of a work in progress like you said they're in a transitional period right now
0: well and particularly when you consider that it's still it's still trading at you know two times tangible book it's not particularly cheap really by most metrics and and so it feels to me a little bit like some of that optimism still remains priced in um, which is one of the reasons why i'm not a wells fargo shareholder i will say you know with us bank <laughs> in a lot of ways it's just a really boring bank and that is what makes it so beautiful, is because it's just constant grinding success. Not enormous success. I mean, this isn't the next Google, but it's a, it's a company that just consistently does pretty well, pretty quietly, without a lot of headlines or a lot of scandal or a lot of trouble.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's worth mentioning. Uh, both of these are Warren Buffett banks. Uh, Buffett owns both of these in his portfolio because precisely that they're boring and do their job. And delivered strong returns year after year without, I mean, until this year in Wells Fargo's case, not much headline news. Um, Generally, like during the financial crisis, you didn't hear about Wells Fargo in a bad light. You heard about Citigroup and Bank of America and Goldman Sachs and the others. You didn't hear about Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank in a bad way. So that's kind of what these banks are aiming to do. And, you know, maybe Wells Fargo will be that again. But for now, we'll see.
0: Yeah, certainly between the two, I'd, I prefer U.S. Bank just because, you know, unlike Wells, they haven't had some major recent tarnishing event. Um, and I do believe that you get what you pay for in a lot of ways when you're looking at big banks. Um, I, I would say of the big banks, U.S. Bank is probably my favorite of uh, of the bunch just because it's, in a lot of ways, just the most traditional and and I would say in a lot of ways the simplest. Um, And I think that's a really positive thing. What What are your thoughts, Matt?
1: Of the two, I would say it's really tough to make a case against U.S. Bank at these prices. Um, Yes, it's expensive, but the bank does everything they're supposed to do. They're growing nicely. There's no reason, you know, to to worry about their asset quality. Just historically looking back at the financial crisis, and it's an all around just. Very well-run institution. Um, I would I'm not saying I would buy it in my own portfolio right now, but if I were to pick one of the two, it would definitely be US Bank.
0: Agreed. And I'll say, for what it's worth, and um, I've actually had some great email conversations with the listeners about this. So if you ever want to talk banks, just shoot us an email. Industry focus at com. I love getting mail, and I love um, talking to folks about this sort of thing. I personally don't own any of the big banks uh, outside of, I guess. Through index funds, and I don't plan to anytime soon. My belief is that they are so large, so well covered, and so um, diversified that it's difficult to see—at least for me right now—with this particular, um, with with the catalyst that we know about, and with the. Um, valuations that we see—it's hard for me to see market beating returns in the next several years, and so I'm allocating my uh, capital differently. And I tend to attend towards smaller financials companies because I believe that a disproportionate share of um, the profits and the returns and sort of all that good stuff that we investors love will come from the disruptors. Um, perhaps that's. Actually, not just perhaps. That's definitely its own episode for its own time. Um, yeah, but, I can argue with that logic, right? <laughs> but well, Matt and I are both kind of temperamentally growth investors in a lot of ways. But that said, you know, of the big banks, you know, your your favorite is Bank of America, mines U.S. Bancorp. Uh, I I think it's it's hard to make a, a huge case against either of them right now. So there's definitely a lot of reason to see good things happening in the in the coming years. If perhaps not market beating things happening, but that's its own long conversation. So, folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions? Comments? You can always reach us at at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on.